Maine connection. Uh, a few folks up in Maine are actually watching this morning, and um, they're all snowed in, and I was wondering if I was going to wear socks today. So, yeah, I, I decided to, just for looks, yeah. Um, I'll tell you, you know, worship, you've heard me say this before, it's really not the warm-up uh, to our church. It really is the real deal. And uh, is it going to be easier to worship in heaven than here? You are worthy of it all. You had a worship opportunity this morning. You, like me, were always tempted to be mildly distracted in a hurting world where tragedy, where senseless killings happen, like this morning in Montecito, if you looked at the news. Um, worship is going to be easier in heaven. Because there's a face-to-face reality that we're going to be enjoying. But Grace Point Church, worship is possible here because of who Jesus is, because of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And I do believe that worshiping here in a broken world is 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 a great gift that God deserves that we can give. Um... So let's not wait for worship to be easier when sin will be no more, when things will be more evident face-to-face. Let's worship with faith here. You will not have to worship with faith there. Faith will be replaced by faith. But what a gift we can have here to worship well here. Worship is surrendering. Worship said, God, I know enough to worship you well. I wish I knew more. I wish I had all the answers. I don't. I know enough, though, and I'm all in. Let's go back to uh, a Thursday night, you and I together, in Mark chapter 14. Take a look with me at a passage in Mark chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 12. We're going to go ahead and uh, dive back into this Passion Week that we started a long time ago. Uh, Basically, it's taken us over a year to take a look at what really happened through this this ministry of Jesus. Um, On a Thursday night, it's pretty much right in the middle of a a week that has been building with tension. Uh, This Thursday is between the Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday of Jesus' last week. And tension really has been rising. Uh, The Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests, they've already decided we need to kill him. We can't wait anymore. It's getting a little bit too crazy. And the crowds are continuing to grow and move away from us and towards him. We got to kill him. Well, the crowds are drawing closer and many are still curious about this king, this Messiah. So they're still processing. So the Pharisees are planning to kill him. The crowds are drawn to him. And then the disciples are wanting to protect him. They know the tension's rising. Basically, this is a cloak and dagger passage. They literally are hiding in the dark because there is a price on Jesus's head. See, the Pharisees already are trying to grab him away from the crowd so they can take him, arrest him, and get the Romans to kill him. They already had a plan. The only thing that they couldn't figure out is how to get him away from the crowds because if they got him with the crowds, there'd be riots and uh, there might even be a rebellion against them. And so they've already decided, so how how are you going to do it? Most likely they decided, you know what? During this Passover dinner, this is a great time because Since 1446 B.C., and we're going to go there in a little bit, uh, there has been this this feast of unleavened bread. And in the middle, there's this Passover Seder Lord's Supper meal on that Thursday night. Every Jewish family is is, is secluded in their homes, and and, and everybody is is off the streets, and everybody is celebrating this, this dinner that started way back since Exodus 12, this would be a great time to grab him because no one is around. But where is he? They're looking for him. Tension is high. And so in this Seder Passover 
meal. Jesus has this special moment with these 12 disciples. Three things that he tries to do on this very special night. One is he tries to link the past to the present. What they have been celebrating all their lives, what their forefathers have been celebrating since 1446 BC, almost 1500 years. Jesus saying that history is about my story. And then what he tries to do is is help prepare them for what's going to happen that night. So it's not just about the past, it's about the present. He literally drops a bomb with them. It's, It's going to happen. And then he says, let me prepare you for when I'm gone. Let me remind you of a few things. You might not get it now, but you're going to get it then. I want you to remember what I'm about to say. So there's a little bit of a past, present, and future evening. Here's what we're going to do at Grace Point Church. We're going to listen in. We're not in the upper room. Uh, We're not around this table where the Passover Seder meal is being offered. But we get to listen in. And we get to go ahead and, 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 and learn how to live in 2023 with what I'm calling Passover principles on your, on your outline. And so let's take a look, not just about that time. Let's take a look at our time because the insights and what Jesus says has relevancy to this morning, this week, and as we launch into a new year. So let's go ahead and dive right on in. Look at Mark chapter 14 now, starting in verse 12. We're going to go from verse 12 to 31 this this morning. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, that's one of their feasts and festivals that began in the Old Testament that they're still celebrating. On the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, they've been sacrificing lambs for 1,500 years. His disciples said to him, well, it's time. It's Thursday night. So where are we going to do it? Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover meal? So to, to, ga- to, to grab a hold of this, we got to go back just for a few moments to Exodus 12. This, this Passover celebration, this Passover meal is dripping with history. But it's all about his story, his ministry. And most miss it back then and even today. So let's go ahead and connect some dots just a a little bit. So Exodus 12 uh, is the culmination of of what has been growing in Egypt. Uh, Exodus chapter 10, we're not going to do that. Basically, uh, Moses comes... uh, has a calling of God on his life, uh, go and tell the Pharaoh, which is basically the, the biggest bully on the planet and the one who has a real control issue, thinks he's a God. And so you go say, my God is telling you to let them go. <laughs> my, no. Do you know who I am? So again, it, it's going on. And to get his attention, uh, he uh, is used by God uses Moses for these 10 plagues. And some of you know the, 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 the church story of that and the Old Testament story. Well, Exodus chapter 10 is after the ninth plague. The ninth plague was darkness. Darkness was thick. You couldn't see. It was a time of fear and panic in the land. It's interesting. It was a direct confrontation to Ra, one of the gods of Egypt. And he was the god of the sun. And says, so, listen, I'm going to go ahead and turn off the lights, and your God is not going to be able to turn them back on. And so, again, uh, every one of these plagues is a confrontation to their deities. And Exodus chapter 10, after the ninth plague, where it was dark. By the way, it wasn't dark in Gershom. It wasn't dark where the Israelites were. It was only dark where the Israelites were not. And so it's really interesting. And so then after that, the the Pharaoh, his hearts get hardened. And he says, listen, Moses, I'm done playing games with you. I'm done with all these these, these plagues. Next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. So do not come back anymore. If I see you again, you're dead. And Moses says, as you wish. And so that sets up the last plague. 
And so Exodus chapter 11, God says, this last plague is going to be so severe. Babies will die. Children will die. And the Pharaoh will let my people go. So it, it came to this. And so on that night, the firstborn of all Egypt, Jew and Gentile, by the way, were going to die. That's what God said. And uh, so no home will be spared when the angel of judgment is flying over, except that there is a way out. There's a way to be saved from this judgment. And that is to go ahead and uh, kill a lamb and sprinkle this blood of this lamb over your door uh, on both sides and above. And when the angel of judgment comes because of the oppression and the, and the, and the violence for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, the angel will pass over where the lamb is covering the home. And so that's exactly what happened. So let's take a look at Exodus chapter 12, 1 through 6. Now, this is way back. It's about 1446 B.C. And, uh, and so now... This is not just about them. This is about the, the, the feast of the unleavened bread, including this Lord's Supper meal that now is going to be celebrated because God said so for almost 1,500 years. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. What is he saying? What I'm about to do is going to be a restart on your very calendar. You're not going to have... Uh, day one of month one, the way you've had it before, this is the first month of your calendar year for the rest of your days. It's interesting that that is also a foreshadowing when Jesus came. So that was the first reset of the Jewish calendar. When Jesus came, that was a reset of everyone's calendar. So after Jesus died and rose again, basically BC and AD showed up before Christ and in the day of our Lord. And so again, there's so much foreshadowing and symbolism all the way through this story. But in this night, God said, what I'm about to do is going to split your calendar. It's going to begin your calendar anew. It shall be the first month of the year for you from now on. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, take a lamb without blemish. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So again, that's how it started. Question, the Egyptians, matter of fact, the first nine plagues, it only happened to the Egyptians. None of them happened to the Jewish families to get their attention. What would have happened if the Egyptian would have slain a lamb and put a, some blood over an Egyptian home? They would have been spared. What would have happened if a Jewish family said, listen, we don't need to do that. that is, I'm not going to kill any innocent lamb. I'm Jewish. I'm already in. Thank you. What would have happened to a Jewish family if they would have not had blood over their household? They would have lost their firstborn. And so, again, there's so much here for this. But here's what I want, here's what I want to go after just, just, just a little bit. And uh, this is dripping with symbolism all the way through it. And most missed it. Uh, you know, John the Baptist, uh, Mary, the, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, we, we've already looked at her last week. Uh, Anna and Simeon, when Jesus was born, they got it. Remember what John the Baptist shouted to draw people away from him to Jesus in John chapter 1. Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, here's the, here's the question for you. If you're trying to go ahead and stir momentum so that people will follow this new guy, what would you call him? What would be a fierce uh, symbol of, 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 of this new hero? My guess is you would not have called him a lamb. I mean, we have football teams, we have basketball teams, and you don't see a, a, a mascot being a lamb, right? Lambs are weak. Lambs are frail, 
Uh, lambs need a lot of help. When God calls you a lamb, that's our sheep. That's not a compliment, right? And uh, so again, what was John the Baptist saying? He's mighty. What he's saying is he's Messiah. And he is the lamb after so many lambs have been slain. He's the one that everything has been leading up to. See, John the Baptist got that this Passover meal. Most missed it. But when he said, behold, the lamb of God is coming who takes away judgment, who takes away the sin of the world. John 1 verse 29, uh, John the Baptist got it. So here's again, back now on, on a Thursday night. Why did the disciples have such a hard time when Jesus was slain? Why did they have such a hard time? You know, we've talked about this because they really thought that it was time for a revolution against Rome. That really is true. They really thought the Messiah is going to be a conqueror. He's not going to be killed. That's very true. Let me throw out something else at you. You know why it was so hard for them? You know, it says, it's not going to happen on my watch. Because it was personal for them. They've spent three and a half years with Jesus. They knew him. They loved him. They broke bread with him. They knew that he was innocent. I just can't stand by and watch someone so innocent, so loving, so caring, who's done so much good. It was personal for the disciples. Does that make sense? It's interesting. In Exodus chapter 12, the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal that was now celebrated for almost 1,500 years, every year it was personal. That's why it was very difficult. Look back on Exodus 12, 1 through 6. Notice when it says, okay, for the rest of your days, uh, you're going to go ahead and take a lamb on the what day? Do you see it? On the 10th day. Take a lamb out of the flock. Bring this lamb into your home. When will the lamb be killed? Do you see it? Five days later, on the 14th day. Okay, some of you have kids. I have kids. By day two, that lamb had a name. That lamb was now fuzzy. That lamb was eating and, and playing with the kids. And the parents knew this. What are we doing? Passover is very personal for the kids because the lamb literally was part of their family for five days. Why on earth would God do that? Because it was personal. Not just personal for the kids. It was personal for the adults. You know, this, this lamb was not killed by some priest down the street. The, the blood was not painted over a door by a stranger. Every family had to kill their own lambs. Every family had to say, you know what? I can't. No one else can do it for me. I need to do that. This is, this is our decision. This is our family. This is our door. It was very personal. If they were like you and me, I would have hated to have done that every year. Can you imagine the questions that the kids had, Daddy, seriously? You know what? The Passover meal was supposed to raise questions. It was supposed to be hard, and it was back then and today. So it was very personal for the disciples. Uh, you know, they've kind of gotten used to the lamb, but they were so not used to the lamb and uh, so uh, there's a lot going on here. So now let's go ahead and jump forward here a little bit. Look at Acts 12, 25 through 27. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, the promised land, after I free you from Egypt, as he was promised, as he is around, you shall keep this service. You shall keep this memory going. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Why are we doing this? That's not fair. What'd that lamb do to you, dad? What do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt. And you look at this, there really was a past, but there really was a future focus. And we're going to look at that uh, this morning of this Passover meal. It was so that they would always remember that God sets people free and that our forefathers were in bondage. They couldn't get out of slavery on their own. There is no way they would have been freed other than miraculously being set free 
by Almighty God. And so that was the story so they can go ahead and, and, and remember. So let me go ahead and dive into this just a little bit more because then we're going to get back to a Thursday night between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So you have this Passover lamb, Fuzzy. And day five, Fuzzy was killed. Fuzzy's blood was painted on the doorstep so the kids can see it. I mean, honestly, that's a little bit gross, right? And, uh, but God gave them and God gave us opportunities to reflect on the hard realities of sin and salvation and so and substitution I mean there's all all that's going on and uh so uh but there's more to it so part of this feast of unleavened bread part of this Passover meal you have this lamb that was slain every year fuzzy yeah and then you also have this matzah you know, matzah, and we've had Brother Barney here, Barney Kaz, and our Jewish rabbi and, and others. And so uh, that Passover meal for 1,446 years, right, since, since the first Exodus 12, uh, there was a lamb that was slain. Uh, and then there was, there, was a, there was a piece of bread that was unleavened, uh, that was snapped. And unleavened means it wasn't given time to rise. And so this was part of the memory looking back that they didn't have time to pack. Literally, they left Egypt that night after the judgment happened over homes that were not passed over. Uh, Pharaoh said, just get out now. So they literally left in haste. And so that was, that was prompting of this memory. And so this unleavened bread, uh, matter of fact, if you're back in Exodus 12, they were to eat the meal with a staff in their hand and uh, with sandals on their feet. And they were, they were supposed to eat symbolically because uh, this was a time that they were leaving Egypt. They also have bitter herbs on, on the Seder meal that Jesus and the 12 were were, were, were using. The bitter herbs was like parsley or horseradish and dipped in salt water. And the, 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 the salt water, the, the, the tears, the, the tears of the Egyptians that, that lost so much that night. The, the tears of the Jewish families that lost so much for the last 400 years. The, the, the tyranny of, of slavery. And uh, so uh, the, the harshness of, of, of reality um, and then you have what is called the Heroseth, and that is this bowl uh, mixed with apple and pear and, and, and nuts and a little bit of possibly wine to make it a mush, kind of like a clay. And uh, it, it would look kind of like the mortar. And you can read about this where, again, that was to symbolize the, the, the mortar that the forefathers used to make the bricks when they were slaves and they built the Egyptian empire. And so again, all of these symbolisms were to remember the oppression and the freedom that God, that, that, that God provided. Also, and this is kind of where it gets into more gospel uh, focus, uh, although they all pointed to what Jesus would do, there were four cups of wine during every uh, Lord's Supper meal. By the way, the Lord's Supper is called Seder. Uh, Seder means order. There was an order to this meal that was not broken. There was the stuff and there was the script that you don't mess with. And uh, so again, go through the order, go through all the stuff, let questions, tell your stories, and include four cups of wine. Maybe it was one cup poured four times or, or four cups, however they did that. Um, but these cups of wine through the meal were cups of deliverance. He is our deliverer, and he will be our deliverer. This Lord's Supper was a point to the Lord that was supposed to come, the Messiah that they're waiting for because of the oppression, separation of, uh, of sin, so all of that is going on. So now let's, let's, let's jump back to a Thursday night. Take a look at Mark chapter 14, verse 13. And so, again, remember, this was kind of cloak and dagger stuff. There was a price on Jesus' head. And uh, the Pharisees were looking for him. People were sent out, paid to find this man who must die. Uh, so, and he sent two of his disciples, Jesus sends two of his disciples and, and says to them, go into the city, Jerusalem, and uh, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. 
follow him, and uh, wherever he enters, uh, follow him. Don't make a scene. Say to the master of the house that he kind of leads you to, and say, the, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll look around, making sure you're not followed, and then he will show you a, a large upper room, furnished and ready, and there prepare the Seder, the Lord's Supper, the, the, the Passover meal together. So Jesus already had this planned out. Jesus had many followers, many of which we don't know their names and, and, and where they were, but Jesus uh, had many uh, that, that said, I believe, I, I bow the knee to you. And this was one of them. And so this was all set up by Jesus, but it had to be cloak and dagger. So you two go, don't make a scene. And in, sadly, first century Middle Eastern culture, women were the one that carried water, right? And so most likely, this is the only guy that was carrying water. So how are you going to find a guy? Literally during the Passover meal, um, the statute was, if you lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, by Jewish law, you had to celebrate the Passover meal within the walls of Jerusalem. So the place was packed. I mean, there's men, women, kids everywhere. And uh, so how are you going to find this upper room? Well, look around, look, 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 and there's going to be a guy. He's going to be carrying some water. You look, and he might look, and then you follow, and he'll look behind, and then he'll lead you to the house, and then that will lead you to an upper room. So again, cloak and dagger stuff. And that's, that's, that's exactly what happened. So now take a look at uh, uh, verse Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, I mean, honestly, Jesus, over his ministry, he, he, he throws verbal grenades, right? He, he says things that you just weren't prepared for. He does it twice on a Thursday night. This is the first one. See, the disciples knew that people outside of that room were against Jesus, and they were on edge. We're going to protect him until death. And uh, he will not be betrayed on our watch. So they knew that the, the enemy, the, the ones that were against Jesus, were out there. What they were not prepared for is that one of the betrayers was in the room. That was, that was unthinkable. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Well, they were all eating, right? And so again, that, that, that got the room really quiet. And it's really it's interesting. Who do you think they started looking at? Well, the one with the pointed nose, right? And the one with the sinister eyes and the one with the tail coming at. No, Judas didn't look like that. Judas was one of the most trusted of the 12. He, he handled their money. And I think it's interesting. Take a look at verse 19. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, every single one, is it I? I thought about that. Why would every one of them not look at anyone else, including Judas? No one did. They all looked at themselves. Jesus, please say it's not me. You know why I think that they were taking a good look at themselves, <laughs> they've grown up a bit. They spent time with Jesus for three years. I think they got a good view of him, but they also have a better view of themselves. They knew what they were capable of. Do you? Do I? Oh, I would never watch yourself. And they, I think they learned that. Jesus, I love you. I'm for you. I believe I would die for you. But I also know I have bad days. I also have a civil war of sin and self that wants to win in my life. And uh, I, I shudder to think that it's me. Is it me? He said to them, well, it is one of the 12. One of you is dipping bread into the dish with me. And there's something that... Uh, is very, I think, important to unpack here, and it's, it's right here. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. For the Son of Man goes. It was prophesied, I will be crucified. 
my arrest is imminent. I will be, he's told them that ever since Mark 8, right? If you've been walking this through, guys, it's going to happen. And uh, I mean, all the prophecies, all the promises, there must be a sacrificial substitute of a perfect lamb. And it's me, and it's going to happen tonight. And so again, for the Son of Man goes as, as it is written of him. Boy, if you have your Bible, uh, circle the word but. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's, there's a lot of stories uh, in the, the Bible. I think one of the books that it's rattling in my head are buts in the Bible. And uh, there's a lot of things that are better left behind. There it is. And so I just happened at time to write it. Isn't that bad? And so, but this is one of these buts in the Bible that I think is, uh, is interesting. So for the Son of Man goes as, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. You know what I think is behind that but? Is Jesus' heart for Judas. And this is where foreknowledge, omniscience, revelation about future events that hasn't happened yet, and volitional will collide. Grace One Church, I do not believe that Judas did not have a choice. I believe that Jesus was going after Judas's heart. What was going to happen to Jesus, arrest, trial, death, resurrection, was inevitable. It's going to happen. God would make it sure. Not only will God make sure it's going to happen, but he was on God's timetable when it happened. See, the Pharisees thought, we're going to get him, and it's going to be on our time. God says, absolutely not. My story will unfold. This death must take place. A lot more on that next Sunday when Jesus is in the garden. But I encourage you to wrestle with how inevitable was Judas's betrayal. I do not believe it was inevitable. I believe Jesus was going after him. He knows that one is being tempted and struggling and not, not asking for help with what he is struggling with. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Was Jesus going to be arrested? Yes. Was he going to be crucified? Was he going to be resurrected? Yes. But Jesus, until the very end, was going after Judas. If Judas, Judas this is me, if Judas would have repented that night, guys, I got to be honest with you. I've been thinking about it. I've been struggling with the fact that the way decisions are made and the way money is wasted and, and the way the Romans are still in power, I, I've been tempted. And if he would have repented that night, he, I believe he still would have been part of the 12. I believe he would have continued to walk with Jesus uh, as one of, one of the, the many followers. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written, so many prophecies, but woe to that man whom the Son of Man has betrayed. Uh, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Don't. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't have to. Watch how temptation can become sin. Can, can, can lean towards that. It's interesting, you know, it's about woe to that man. There's a quote in Psalms 41, verse 9. Uh, David, one of the Davidic Psalms, King David, uh, most likely Jesus is quoting this one. Uh, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So the Old Testament is dripping with this Jesus story that's coming. And it's a very beautiful, it's a very beautiful connection. So God's foreknowledge of Judas and of history does not mean he causes Judas's choices or the casualties of history. I encourage you to think that one through. And this is kind of where God is eternal. God is outside of time. There's nothing that he does not know. But what he knows, does he always cause no, he doesn't cause cancer. He didn't cause what happened last night in Montecito. He knew it. There's foreknowledge, but there's not causality. And I believe that he does know your future. But if you choose to rebel, 
If you choose to never say yes to him, he's not causing that. He's wooing you, even though he knows at the same time. Food for thought. Let's keep going here. So uh, Mark 14, verse 22, uh, this is the second verbal grenade that Jesus brings in. And, uh, and as they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And it's interesting, there was a Seder script that they were waiting for Jesus to say because they've heard it, it has been said their entire life. So this is the, 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 the snap. This is the bread of affliction, which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. So again, this matzah was snapped. This is how we were set free. This is how, maybe they even talked about how the, the, the Red Sea parted. and the, the look back and how slavery was, was no more from, from Egypt. But that's not what Jesus does. He breaks the script. You're not supposed to break the script, right? I mean, it's like, what's going on here? And so literally says, guys, since 1446, this meal that you have had that I have had, it's always been about me. This bread, yes, is about what happened back then. And yes, it was unleavened because they left in haste. But God is all about saving people from slavery. And the greatest slave of all is of sin. And the greatest separation is not Egypt and the promised land. It's here in heaven. And I've come to make that possible. Take, this is my, guys, it's coming. This is gonna symbolize what's gonna happen to me very soon. And he took a cup, the, the, the cup of, of deliverance, right? The four, he says, guys, this is me. I'm about to drink a cup. We'll talk about that next Sunday of this, of this, of this, the full measure of sin on me. So it doesn't have to be on you. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. And he said, this is my blood. This wasn't his blood. This is not transubstantiation. This is not this, 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 this molecular reconstruction where the wine turns into blood and the bread turns into juice. No, 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 no. This is symbolism as, as all the Old Testament is dripping with symbolism leading to the gospel that now is before you and I. So this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. All of the lambs that have been died they don't have to die anymore. It's all about how personal that was. This is very personal tonight. And uh, now I'm about to say it's done. It's finished no more. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, this wine, this, 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 this meal, until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. He's already looking beyond it. And then Mark 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, now, there were some hymns that were sung that were psalms uh, that we have in our Bible. And some of the psalms are the psalms of Hallel, a little bit of Jewish stuff here. Uh, psalms 113 to 118, most likely he sang one of them or maybe more of them. But uh, they love to sing scripture. They love to remember and reflect on what God has done because he hasn't changed who he is. And now we can know that what he promises in the future we, we, we can trust. So they sing a, a hymn. And then they went out to the Mount of Olives. So now they're no longer in Jerusalem. They go outside, most like the East Gate, because the Mount of Olives on the east side. And they go down through the Kidron Valley. And now they're on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And that's where we're going to be next Sunday. But here's a question for you. Why did he leave that upper room? Everybody's looking for him. He knows that he's going to be arrested. I do not believe it was controlled that Judas must. He has just as much volition of will as you. But he will be betrayed. He will be arrested. Why on earth would Jesus leave the safety of an upper room to go out in public knowing that they're looking for him? You know why? Because he loves you. He knows that it needs to happen. He was not going to go ahead and live behind the walls. But there's something else here. 
What would have happened if somehow people would have found out that Jesus is in that upper room in Jerusalem? You know what they would have done? They would have come and got him. In the middle of the night, maybe the word would get out and there probably would be a riot and blood would be shed because there were a lot of Jesus followers. I believe one of the reasons is Jesus said, listen, I'm the only one who needs to have their blood shed tonight. And so I'm going to go out. I'm going to get away from the city and I'm going to let it happen in more privacy. It's going to happen. Um, but I don't want other people to, to die tonight. So that's what's going on here. So then, uh, and they sung a hymn, and they left the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written. And then he quotes Zechariah right here. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Why is he saying that? He knows, and I want you to know, he's saying, that I know. So that's this foreknowledge, and, 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 but not causality because of the volitionality of their will and all that. I mean, honestly, we're wrestling here. But, but why would he say that? And I'm going to hold that to you in just a minute. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Uh, for, but, but here it is. But, here's another but in the Bible. But after I'm raised up, he says, now, guys, remember, it's going to get bad. And you're going to scatter in fear. But after I am raised up, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, and, and they all do this, you know what? There is no way. Even though they all fall away, I will not. And the other disciples says, well, who do you think you are? I won't either. And so here it is, you know, even though they all fall away, I will not. I, honestly, I think Peter meant that. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I tell you, that very night, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Why would he say that? I don't believe that it was, again, there was foreknowledge, but there's volitionality, but he sees it. And, 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 and when, when Peter does it, Jesus wants Peter to remember what Jesus just said. And, and hold that thought. There's more we're going to unpack in the coming weeks. And, uh, but truly, I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. It's interesting. We know that in John 13, Judas is not there. He left halfway through the, the Lord's Supper. And even as he left, you know what they thought? There must be a money matter that he is attending to. Uh, they still didn't even think it was him, even when he stood up and left. That is basically how they had no category for that. So again, that's, that's the passage, all right? So that's that's a lot, and so that's where we are. So we're going to pick this up this Thursday night, next Sunday, where basically Jesus is in the dirt, and Jesus is, is struggling. We're going we're gonna to go there um, next, next Sunday. But what do I want to do this morning, just for the last few minutes that we have, let me give you now, it won't take me this long, but four principles from this Passover dinner that we can apply this year. Let's not just get historical. Let's, 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 let's live right here, right now. So I would encourage you to write a couple of things down. Let me give you four things to process here related to, so what do I do about this? Here's the first one. Regarding traditions, be mindful. What does that mean? Regarding the what, be mindful of the why. You know, they had traditions back then. Grace Point has traditions right now. You have traditions personally with, with, with your faith in Jesus. The tendency, if we're not careful, is we forget the why that first started the what. And so the traditions that we have, why do we do what we do? That is a good question. We need to be purposeful about that. And it must always point to our faith in Jesus. May you and I, may we together never have an empty ritual. So you might ask yourself, what do you do because of your faith in Jesus and why do you do it? Does it help you become closer to Jesus? If it doesn't help you become closer to Jesus, then why are you doing it at all? Matter of fact, maybe you should be doing it, but be mindful of why you're doing it. And so again, regarding traditions, and again, we're not going to go there. Luke chapter 24, it's interesting that Jesus with two disciples after his resurrection, he opened up the Old Testament and says, let me tell you, let me connect the dots of all of these stories and how they all were about me. 
I would want Jesus, if he basically walked with you and I at Grace Point Church, he would be able to, we would be able to point to every tradition and how it is all about him. So regarding traditions, let's be mindful. Number two, regarding temptation, let's be humble. I will never watch that. You know, there's a verse here that I want to share with you. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13. If you think you're standing strong back then and today, be careful lest you fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others were experiencing, and God is faithful, and he will not allow you, and honestly, I believe Judas is part of this, he will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. But when you were tempted, I believe he was going after Judas, he's going after the 12, all of them. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. When it comes to temptation, temptation is not sin, but temptation can lead to sin if you're not humble. There's something else about that too. An innocent situation can turn into temptation if you have loose boundaries. So have boundaries about your life at home, at work, and play because you are not immune from the temptation and the sins that you see around you. So regarding temptation, just be humble. I love how they said, is it I? They knew, you know what? I know what's in me. I know what I want to believe and I know what I've committed to, but I need to be humble about this. But for the grace of God, but for the grace of God. The third one, regarding sins, be thankful. Don't be thankful for sin. Don't be thankful for the presence of sin in your life, but be thankful for the mercy and grace after you sin. I think that's where Jesus was going with these guys. Guys, James 3, we all stumble in many ways. You're going to sin. You're going to fall. You're not going to want to, but you're going to do it. When you sin, not if you sin, don't let guilt consume you. Some of you, you have an extremely strong guilt gene. You're guilty, even you're feeling guilty even when you shouldn't, right? But boy, it's even on hyperdrive when there is sin. You need to come quickly to the throne of grace and deal with your guilt. And so again, uh, that's what he says. Guys, you're all going to fall away, but after I'm raised up, it's not over. I'll see you soon. I won't see you down here. I'll see you in Galilee. And Jesus knew they're going to scatter but he also hopes that they will remember, you know what? Ah, I, Jesus said that. And uh, maybe he's not done with this yet. And so I love the Hebrews 4, 16. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. When do you need grace? When do you need to be most bold? When you had a bad day. When you sin. And I sin. The devil wants to come right at you and says, you know what? You need to go ahead and, uh, and, and doubt God's love and to detach from your faith and all that stuff. So again, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. He knows you're going to sin. He's not causing you to sin, just like he did not cause them to sin. But he knows you're going to sin. If you're not going to sin there, you're going to sin here. We all stumble in many ways. When you sin, not if. When I sin, not if. You will either be consumed by guilt or grace. Go, go the grace route. Here I am again, God. Yep, here you are. And I love you just like I did back then. And I love you just like I will tomorrow. And I want to give you the grace that you need, even when you need it the most. And here's one last one. This is an interesting one. Regarding Jesus, be careful. What do I mean by regarding Jesus, be careful? Regarding the two most clear choices about Jesus. Be very careful which one you choose. Again, this whole series is Case for Christ. For 16 chapters, Mark is presenting primarily to a Gentile, non-Jewish setting, like most likely we are many, although we have some Jewish folks in our family here. Uh, there's a case for Christ, and Mark literally 
says, you don't have a third option. He, he takes that away from you. He's not a good guy if he's not God. He's not this great inspirer, motivator, leader, if he's not your savior, deliverer. So don't put him in a good category of the, of the amazing men and women, the Martin Luther Kings of back then and today. Because Martin Luther King never did. And these guys and gals that we respect and admire and honor, uh, if they thought they were God, if they thought they could forgive sin, I think the honor would be lesser, don't you think? And, uh, and that's where Jesus is. So don't put him in the middle. But here's the deal. Regarding Jesus, <laughs> you got to kill him one way or the other. And what do I mean by that? Either back away. I just don't want anything to do with him. And the guy thought he was way more than he was. You got to get rid of him or... You got to acknowledge that he died for you. One way or other, you got you to acknowledge his death. You have to go ahead and say either he is or he's not. But be very careful what you do this year. And again, this, this last verse here, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You know, those kind of statements, uh, you just can't choose the middle round. So as you're leaning into the last part of this gospel series and you're leaning into a new year, be careful what you do with Jesus. Kill him, do away with him, or acknowledge his death. I was part of why you were crucified. And I needed you to be crucified for me because of my sin and the possibility of experiencing grace when the Lamb of God came and his blood can be painted over my life. You bow your heads, let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing in, in, in many. Uh, as we are grappling with truth and grappling with you and, and, uh, and learning along the way. Father, I pray that we won't just keep our faith above the neck. We won't just be learning interesting insights about history. But history is really all about your story and our opportunity for our story, God, to be radically changed, a new beginning, a new start because of accepting Jesus as Lord to lead, Savior to forgive. So use these insights, use these moments like this, God, to draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You have a worship moment right now as we, as we wrap up. Don't miss it. How has God been stirring you, stretching you? How would you like to respond back to him?